So glad you're here with us tonight. The opportunity just to gather to sing these songs that we only sing once a year. Um, and probably look at passages that you think we only look at once a year. But I'm going to throw you a curve tonight, and we're going to look at two other passages that have a lot to do with Christmas, as we'll see as they play out in our message. If you have your Bible and would like to follow along, the first reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and then the second reading from Philippians chapter 2. So before I read the word of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would come and fill our hearts tonight, that we would be mindful of the truth of your word, that your spirit would come and open our eyes to it, that we would have full and and clear understanding of it and what it means to this world and what it means to us as individuals, your creation, that you loved us enough to send your son into this world that he would save us. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And now to Philippians chapter 2. This is one portion of the great Christ hymn. Verses 5 through 11, really, and we're just going to read two verses out of that, verses 6 and 7. Paul's letter to the Philippians, this, the church at Philippi was just his favorite group of people. He loved those people so much, and he says, you are my joy and my crown. And to them, he writes this, this beautiful piece about the attitude that they should have, and it should be just the same as it is that, the attitude that Christ had. In fact, I'll start in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. This is God's inspired word for us today. Now, I hope you have come expecting a little bit more than, than a warm fuzzy on Christmas Eve. It's nice to, to, to sing those songs, and I, I, just, I just love those songs. You'll notice in the worship folder, it says verses on Noel, the first Noel, verses 1 and 6. I, we have to sing all six verses. I know it's long, but it's so good, and it plays out the, and unfolds that entire story of the birth of Christ for us. Well, I hope tonight that you've come possibly with your thinking cap on, because I have a lot of questions to pose to you tonight. And unfortunately, I'm not going to give you the answers tonight. Now, I I know you don't like to come to church and then leave with more questions than you came with, and I don't particularly like to leave you with all those questions, but tonight I'm going to put them to you, and you will have to wrestle with them and with the answer to them, because the answer is simple, but I can tell you one thing. Though the Bible and Scripture is rational, it is laid out for us, and many of us are very rational and linear in our thought, and we like things laid out, and and we like them to be logical and rational, and 
and the Bible is that. But tonight, the thing that we're going to talk about can only be grasped by faith. It cannot be grasped in the rational mind because it makes no sense. It cannot be grasped grasped in a logical fashion because it simply is not logical. It must be grasped by faith. And that is God came to earth in the form of a child. That makes no rational or logical sense. Why would God, if he is the creator of all things, who holds all power, who is all righteousness and all justice and all knowledge, and he is everywhere, why would he choose to send his son, God, in this earth in the form of a child? You can only understand that tonight by faith. Now, the more I read about the birth of Christ, the more I studied it, the more I became shocked at the number of uh, we'll call them paradoxes that surround the birth of Christ and the teachings that are there. Paradox is what appears to be a contradiction that may conceal some truth, but it also reveals much truth at the same time. And the Bible is filled with paradoxes. Let me give you some. We triumph by surrendering. We find rest under a yoke. We see the unseen through faith. We find freedom in becoming Christ's servants. We are made great by becoming nothing. If you want to be first, you have to be last. We gain it all through giving it all away. We become wise by becoming fools for Christ's sake. I can only live when I first have died to myself. Now, you list all those. Those are just some of the paradoxes in Scripture. It seems like it can't happen. How can I live only if you die? How can I have freedom only if you become a slave? To Christ. That's the only way that it happens. Yet I think the greatest paradoxes that we find in Scripture surround the birth of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at the historic context just for a minute to remind us what was going on at that period in time. Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man in all the world. In fact, his reign stretched over most of the known world and he had absolute power. Remember, his power is is really reflected in the power of the father in the Roman family who had absolute power over the entire family. If he didn't like his wife, she was gone. If he didn't like his kids, they were gone. He could adopt new ones and, and, and write out of the entire family history his own children and adopt new children and bring them in. That was the power that was within the Roman family. And Caesar Augustus had that over the entire world. He was the wealthiest man, the most powerful man in the world, yet he was a slave to his own desires. He was a slave to his own corruptions. He was not able to get past his humanness. Now, when God himself came to earth, he was not the leader of the largest empire of the world. He was not a conquering hero to be hailed, and he did not... He was not recognized by more than just a handful of people, and even that handful of people did not fully grasp who that child was. He was born not in the palace in Rome, but some obscure little village in the out-of-way country that nobody really cared about. Caesar was the wealthiest man on earth. Jesus showed up with nothing. Caesar slept in a palace of gold on a bed on a bed of gold covered with fine linens, and Jesus was born in a stable slept in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. None of the wealth or power that Caesar possessed compared to the glory that Jesus Christ had just left. 
Remember we read from Christ him in Philippians chapter 2. He left the right hand of the Father. There was all power, all authority. Jesus Christ is the same substance as the Father. Everything the Father has is his. We read in Colossians, all things were created by him and through him. Nothing that has been created has been created except through the power of Jesus Christ. Caesar didn't have that much power. Only Christ did, but yet Christ came in humility. He didn't come in the power. Caesar didn't go anywhere unless he had this giant entourage of armies and of protection and and horns and trumpets to make sure everybody knew that he was there. There were no horns or trumpets when Jesus was born. There were the angels, but who did they come to? Shepherds. I mean, who cares about shepherds? They're on the bottom of the food chain of priority within society at that time. But the shepherds were the ones who got the news that the Savior was born. Let's look at the larger context, both in Scripture and our world today. Now, this week I saw two Christmas cards. One had a guy dressed in a red suit and some little green people next to him and said, Season's Greetings. And another Christmas card had a manger scene with a star and a baby, and it said, you will call his name Emmanuel. One gets it, one doesn't. Okay, one gets it, one doesn't. The first Christmas was marked by a poor one, a manger and a stable. Our Christmas, let's face it, we'll spend millions and millions of dollars, and that's part of the celebration. But a lot of people spend those, those dollars with no thought to the real meaning, and that is to their own peril. They give no thought to what Christmas means, and that is to their own peril. Well, who is Jesus Christ? Let's go to the Old Testament and find out. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find there's a lot of questions to be answered tonight. We look at the prophet Isaiah, who would write about a coming conqueror who would rule the world, who would be Savior and and the deliverer of men. Then Isaiah would later sit down and write about a man of sorrow, who was lonely and who was rejected. He would write about the king of glory and the king of heaven and the eternal savior and the desire of all nations. And then later Isaiah would sit down and write that there was no beauty in him that men would behold. Nothing that would draw us to him. Is this He's talking about the same person in all of these things. How do we resolve these issues? One prophet would write that he would come as with a flaming fire in judgment. Another prophet would write that he would come preaching peace and mercy. And grace. Isaiah chapter 9, we've, we've studied that recently. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Then it says, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. How does the government of the entire world rest upon the shoulders of this child who was born in this out of the way place? And what are his names? Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, the father of eternity, the prince of peace. How could a child be born who is the mighty God? How could a child be born at a specific moment in time when he is the father of all time and is without beginning or end? There is a child. He is human. There is a child. He is God. They are the same. I'm going to say this one slowly. A woman will bring forth a son, and that son made the woman who would give birth to that son. A woman will bring forth a son, and that son made the woman who would give birth to him. That's Jesus Christ. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1. We have to read from, from the Gospel of Luke. I think Jane was there earlier. 
the angel's words to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary, all she wants to know is what's going on. She says, how can this be? She says, I've never known a man. How can this possibly be? Well, we understand that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and she would conceive the Son of God. Genesis chapter 3 says the Messiah would be the offspring of woman. Daniel chapter 7, he would be the Son of Man. Psalm chapter 2, he would be the Son of God. Genesis chapter 22, he's the seed of Abraham. Psalm 132, he would be the fruit of David's body. How can one person be all those things? Have I overloaded your brain yet with questions? How can God be man and man be God and yet be the son of man and the son of God? How can one be the son of man and yet have no human father and be born of a woman when the woman has not known a man and that child be the creator of the woman who gave birth to him? He was God and he was man. He was the word made flesh. He was the seed of the woman born of a virgin without a human father. Galatians chapter 4 says he was born of a woman. He was the son of man. He said himself in Luke chapter 19, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Yet he is the son of God. Let's try something easier. Let's think about a rock. Okay? Just your basic stone. A stone is a much easier concept to grasp until we look at it relative to our Savior. When you think about Christmas, you think about a baby, but Scripture is replete with evidence that Jesus is also this stone. Some people love this stone. Some people hate this stone. Isaiah chapter 8 says, And he shall become a sanctuary, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, to both the houses of Israel for a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here is the coming Messiah. He's going to be a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. People will look at him and take offense. People will stumble over him. They will not understand. They will be confused. They will be angry. That's not a very inviting picture. But 20 chapters later, in 28, Isaiah says, Behold, I lay in Zion the foundation stone, a tested stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. Think, think with me about what Isaiah is thinking. He's thinking, Lord, didn't just a little bit ago you tell me this is a stumbling stone, and now you're telling me this is the foundation stone, a cornerstone? Yes. And then the psalmist says it's the cornerstone that the builders rejected. We all understand what a cornerstone is, especially in the old times. That was the first stone that was laid down, and if that stone was wrong, the rest of the building was wrong. And this is the stone that the builders rejected, but yet it is now the corner stone, that very central foundation stone. How could one person be a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, a cornerstone, a precious stone, a tested stone, and a sure foundation? How could one person be all these things? 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is quoting Isaiah, he's quoting the psalmists. He says, yes, he's all these stones. And the difference is, For those who believe, he is precious. For those who do not believe, he is a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, a rock of offense. Christmas time is not a time to play half measures with the Son of God. 
It is not a time to think it is a warm fuzzy and to leave him there in the manger and to think about him in that fashion. That is the stone which is either precious to you or you reject that stone and it will be a stumbling stone to you. Either you will praise him and live for him or he will cause you, the the Greek says, to throw yourself against this rock of offense and smash yourself. That's what it means. When it says he is a rock of offense, that means it is this great stone wall that you cannot destroy, but you will destroy yourself upon it. Christmas is not a time to leave Christ in the manger. Christmas is a time to celebrate the fact that the Son of God came to this earth, and the only way you can grasp that is by faith. It doesn't make sense why the creator of all things would come for us. Why he would send his son for us, but yet he has done that. He, he will either be precious to you, or you will destroy yourself upon Christ. What will it be this Christmas? I pray that he is precious to you. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, you have done this wonderful work for us. In no way do we deserve it. In no way have we earned it. But yet you have sent your son into this world. And we come tonight to celebrate that fact. And then tomorrow we will celebrate it even more on, on, on that day that we, we celebrate the birth of Christ. Lord, there are many things going on in each of our lives. Many things that fill our minds and our hearts Many things that pull us here and pull us there. There are many opportunities this Christmas season to take our attention away from the truth that God has come to earth. Lord, we believe that and it is precious to us or we do not believe it at our own peril. Fix in our hearts this night, Lord, for we're about to come to your table. And when we come to your table, our hearts need to be right. We need to be reminded who Jesus is and not leave him in the manger, but understand he came to give his life that his blood would set us free from this bondage of sin. Lord, fix in our hearts tonight this truth. Your word says that faith is a gift. Give it generously tonight, Lord. Bestow it upon each of us that we might know the truth that God has come to earth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.